0: Hey guys, this is Jeff Stanek with Figured Out Baseball. Got a really good Figured Out Baseball podcast for you today with Skylar Mead. He's the pitching coach at South Carolina, of course in the SEC, and uh, and somebody that I'm really excited to get into uh, the podcast with. Is a lot of a lot of cool things that he's done, and, and for being a pretty young coach, he's done quite a lot, been a lot of places. Uh, I'll give you a quick background on Coach Mead before we jump into questions with him. He's a Louisville, Kentucky native. He played at Louisville for five years. Uh, graduated there in 2007. From 2008 through 12, he was an assistant coach at Eastern Illinois in the Ohio Valley Conference, a Division I school. He got, um, got his master's degree while he was there, uh, first year as a grad assistant. Uh, in 2008, they won the conference championship. They advanced to the NCAA tournament for only the second time in school history. 2009, the team went 36-14, and 14, won the regular season title. Uh, that year, in 2009, they had a pitcher drafted 48th overall. That was the highest draft at Eastern Illinois since 1988. Four times in Coach Meade's five years at Eastern Illinois, they had the uh, the best ERA in the conference, which is always very, very impressive. From 2013 through 14, he was the pitching coach at Middle Tennessee State, an NCAA Division I team in Conference USA. His 2014 team had the lowest team ERA since 2001, a pitcher that year who led all of the NCAA in strikeouts. That pitcher was a six-round draft pick and eventually played in the major leagues. From 2015 through 17, he was the pitching coach at Michigan State in the Big Ten. His 2016 team led the Big Ten in ERA, opponent batting average, and runs allowed. The team ERA of 2.75 was the third best in all of the NCAA. From 2015, uh, I'm sorry, 2015 through 17, teams at Michigan State also established the top three seasons for total team strikeouts in Michigan State history. November 2017, he was hired at South Carolina as the pitching coach, where he's been since then. Coach Meade, appreciate being on the podcast with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Excited to do this. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I like to start usually with something that kind of stands out from the bio, and for you... um one of the things that stands out for me is just how quickly you have you moved up. Now, I don't know how much you know playing at Louisville helped. I'm sure it helps to have Dan McDonald uh, be able to make some calls for you. But obviously, your resume speaks for itself as far as what you've been able to do. Um, when you get hired at South Carolina, Skyler, that's a position that I'm sure. Hundreds and hundreds of people applied for. I'm sure there were, you know, mid-major assistants all over the country applying for that. Uh, probably division two assistants and head coaches applying for that. You probably have pro guys applying for that job. Um, you know, alumni probably applying for that job. And I'm just, I, I like to talk to guys that just that that get jobs like that and just talk about uh, what that process was like. Can you ta- kind of take us back to that time when you were hired, uh, maybe through the interview process, uh, or even how you first. Um, kind of got your foot in the door, and ultimately how you ended up getting hired. Can we can we talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. No, it's a good question. I, I think it's a, everybody's
1: got unique stories about how things went down. This one was very unique in the sense that uh, for people that don't, don't know, Jerry Myers uh, was pitching coach in South Carolina. He'd been there in two separate stints, and, and when uh, Mark Kingston and, and the rest of his staff, now the staff at on, was brought into South Carolina. He's one of the most respected pitching coaches of all time, but Jerry that fall started having some health problems, and what ended up happening is he needed to step away from from baseball in early November. So what the process was is like everybody, I saw it on Twitter on like a Tuesday morning, like holy crap, Jerry Myers rep retired, like that's crazy, you know? So. What happened for me was uh, there's a, a mutual friend, slash coaching friend that I played with in college that had worked for for Coach Kingston, and um, you know and he just sent out a feel, would you be interested? Of course, obviously the answer is yes. But at the same time, it's a weird dynamic. November, you know, I'm coaching at Michigan State. I love our group. I love our team. We had a lot of success there. So you know, what ended up happening was I, I was reached out to by by Coach Kingston and, and the rest of the group there, and did a couple of things on, like, I guess you could call them phone interviews, and uh, you know, as things kind of materialized it, had winded down to a couple of people, and um, very fortunately, you know, you, about 12 days into it, it's like, hey, can you and your wife hop on a plane and, and get down here for an interview, and, you know, I get picked up from Tyson Lusk, our director of operations, who, who's the best in the country, what he does, and then Ray Tanner was also there, you know, who's won two national titles, almost won a third, and is the athletic director, and you know, 24 hours later, you're uh, being offered the job there. And so it was, it was very whirlwind in a sense, but it definitely had a lot of layers to to how it all materialized. And look, your, your question is great because I think we all have luck. You know, there was probably a guy or two in there that maybe could have had the job, and for whatever reason, it, it wasn't a fit, or they decided not to. And, Fortunately, it worked out. It, it was tough to leave Michigan State and Coach Boss and Coach Sykes and those guys who I have great relationships with still to this day. But it's also an opportunity in the greatest league in the country at arguably one of the three to five best jobs in college baseball, and you, you just can't pass
0: that up. No doubt about that. When I, when I coached and Ray Tanner was the head coach and South Carolina was winning national championships, I mean, that was the mecca of, of college baseball at that time. And I've got to imagine with – Coach Tanner being there, there's, uh, and obviously Coach Kingston, there's a lot, uh, a lot to learn, and, and a lot of really good people, good baseball people involved down there. Um, can you can you talk a little bit to people about the difference between levels? You know, you played at Louisville, but then as a coach, you were at Eastern Illinois, which. You know, I've been in that conference before. I have an idea what that's like. It's a, it's a very, you know, very mid-major, uh, Division One. You, you know, took a, a step up at Middle Tennessee State, another step up to go to Michigan State, and then, uh, I mean, you're at about as high of a level you can get in college baseball now at South Carolina. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between those levels? You know, what what happens as you move up levels? What what is there uh, at the higher levels that the maybe the level you had before that didn't have? that makes sense absolutely i mean one just
1: you break it down to simple you know dollars and cents i mean as you go through each one of those levels there's there's more money on the line whether that be in ticket sales whether that be in travel expenses recruiting expenses um you know the technology in which you purchase at every single level um you know starting out in eastern illinois it was it was kind of crazy i was 22 and i was a you know, I was the second assistant and was the pitching coach, had full autonomy with our pitching staff. And I, to this day, my, I don't think I'd have the career I had if, if Jim Schmidt didn't take a chance on me, which he did not have to do. You know, some 22-year-old kid who just played in Omaha like two weeks earlier. And he, you know, gave me a, gave me a chance to just make my pitching staff better. And, uh, you know, he, he taught me and just like a, many other assistants he had, taught us very well about how to handle your business, how to be diligent, how to how to recruit, all those different things. So, you know, Eastern Illinois, there was there was certainly a little bit of history uh, at the place. There have been some, some good teams. We were fortunate to make our own ways and do things that never happened. I mean, heck, Eastern Illinois was ranked nationally in the country. I mean, how, how did that happen? Well, you know, when you look back at it, it was, it was pretty incredible to be a part of, of that, have some really high draft kicks and kids do some good things and so you move to Middle Tennessee State it's a place that is very baseball rich I mean they've won 17 league titles throughout the Sun Belt and the uh, OVC previously Um, you know there's a little bit more a little bit more budget uh, a little bit more recruiting uh, I guess kind of a landscape if you will Um, great experience there working with Jim McGuire who's a, a great human being and was awesome for those two years to me and my wife Then you go to Michigan State, you're in the Big Ten, and, you know, anybody that follows baseball right now, the Big Ten made a big push about seven, eight years ago within facilities, the Big Ten network, uh, the coaching hires, the coaching salaries. So going up there, it was a really – I was very surprised, you know, about the passion they had for the sport of baseball throughout that league. You you look at places like Indiana, Nebraska, I think it's one of the five best atmospheres in college baseball. People don't realize that. They need to see a game out there in a hey, market. It's incredible. Um, but being a part of that whole whole thing was great. But then you get to the SEC, it doesn't mean you total, have total, you know, carte blanche in terms of what you spend and what you do. But that being said, there are a lot of expectations that you're going to spend money. And we're, we're a program that's, that our responsibility is to make some money, right? We have to sell season tickets. We have games at professional parks we're expected to get, you know, to a certain amount of people. But if you don't win, there's a price to pay for that too. And and so you know that going in. And the reality is is you want people to be critical of what you're doing, whether it's patting you on the back when you're doing something good or or ripping you like they tend to do when you you don't do something good. But it's, uh, it's what I think helps you grow as a coach. And if you're someone like me that has aspirations of being a head coach down the road, Uh, I think it's what you need to learn at at the highest level
0: is being in this league in the NCC. I was at actually the first game ever played at the new South Carolina Stadium. I was coaching at Winthrop, and we opened the place up. And, uh, you know, of course we got beat up a little bit that day, but but it was fun. And, and, man, that park was, was so unbelievable. For anybody that, you know, might have a chance to go to South Carolina and watch a game, I mean, legitimately, when that place opened, I, we were talking as, as Winthrop coaches, like if a guy gets drafted out of South Carolina, he's going to play at a worse stadium probably until like double or triple A. <laughs> I mean, unless of course, the spring training facilities, of course, but like, you know, the low, a, the low A type stadiums that you have, like they're nothing close to what South Carolina has. The place is unbelievable. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's a big part, as uh, it's a different topic,
1: but that's a big part of what we tell these guys in the recruiting process, too. You know, why not spend three great years, you know, t- getting your education in the sport of baseball, developing your body, developing your mind, your arm, your approach, whatever position it may be, so, and, and do it in such a great facility that when you get to pro Bowl, you can roll through the minor league system and you'll play at some of those lower levels, the, the low rookie ball, the low A, the short season A, the things that... Let's be honest. Are not the probably the greatest memories of many baseball players' lives, and so not just our stadium. I mean, I'd be I'd be hypocritical if I just said where are the only do know. No, throughout this league and many others, there's great stadiums, not just from fan support but also just player amenities.
0: I was watching um, <laughs> watching Seinfeld yesterday, and it was the Seinfeld episode that. Uh, they had the pilot. Jerry and George wrote the pilot, and, and George. Uh, th- there's a reason for this, Scholar. I promise, but George was talking about uh, just the expectations. Once once you're successful, then you know he, he in the show he you know God God was going to strike him down and, and was going to kill him with the little the little white thing on his lip or whatever it was. Anyway, the expectations once you have success once you're at you know kind of the peak of college baseball or anywhere else you know that can weigh on some guys it can you know your players know going into things going into the season what the expectations are coaches obviously know what the expectations are uh the expectations are very high you know south carolina is expected to compete for a national championship um how does how do you and coach kingston the rest of the staff how do you uh deal with those expectations and, and how do you Uh, sort of talk to those uh, with your players. I mean, you've got 19-year-olds that are expected to be out there contributing as freshmen, 19-year-olds with expectations of competing on a national level every year. Um, How do you sort of manage those expectations and talk to your players about those things so that they they don't get overwhelmed and that's not – a focal point to the point where it uh, you know makes guys play worse, thinking about the expectation as opposed to you know what, whatever you'd like them to focus on. How do you deal with those expectations in South at South Carolina? Well, I think you have to be very honest with these guys about what social
1: media is. First off, social media represents four percent of the population. Social media is look. I like social media for information. I have to use it as a coach to follow players, and learn information, both good and bad on them. But if you think that that let's just use Twitter, for example. If Twitter is representative of what's really going on in the world, you're sadly mistaken. So I, I try to tell guys very open and honestly, if you're going to drink your Kool-Aid when you have a great game and everyone patting you on the back and telling you how great you are, you got to be able to handle looking at it and seeing things that you don't like. And I, have, I, I mean, I have those same talks even with my family. I mean, look, we get ripped anytime time we lose. That's the nature of the beast. Now, do I think some of the things are fair game? Probably not. But it really doesn't matter because social media is not going anywhere. It's, it's here to stay. And so I think you have to just – you have to talk to your players about it. You have, to, you have to teach them, okay, how can we use this to our advantage? Or how do we know how to avoid the pitfalls that come with it, the pressures that maybe come with it? Because in a place like South Carolina, as you were kind of alluding to earlier, I mean, there's – this isn't a place that's just happy going to a regional. You know, the, the, the Omaha and national championships is the standard. Now, is that a reality every single year? No. Anyone that tells you different is crazy. There's going to be some unfortunate luck one way or another. that need to put you in Omaha or sometimes. Man, game three of a super, it doesn't work out and you lose. It doesn't mean your team wasn't great. It doesn't mean you didn't coach your butt off, right? But you just have to be very careful. Because not only are you going to have fans in the community that, that know what you're doing, but, you know, you're going to read this stuff sometimes. And, and I just think guys need to, need to understand that maybe after a bad loss it's not the time to be active on there, right? And, you know, you're, you're upset about the loss. Fans are upset about it. You probably need to just refrain from the usage of it and, and divert your attention somewhere else. Now, I know it's easier said than done, most certainly. But I, I think the quicker guys can learn that, the better for their psyche both in the present and
0: in the future. Uh, something else from your bio, Skyler, that stands out to me is just, well, obviously the success you've had with pitchers, but specifically the low ERAs, which which sometimes people will say that the ERA is not the best stat to look at for pitchers anymore, uh, but the low ERAs and the high strikeout numbers. Um As college baseball progresses, uh, you know, bats change over time, things like that. You know, offensive mentalities change, especially now that offenses have uh, a lot of tools to measure a lot of things with hitters. You know, strikeout numbers, I think, around college baseball are are going up. uh, But also, you know, runs are still being scored in plenty. But you've had some teams with some unbelievable team ERAs. Um, you've had teams that have, you know, led uh, pretty regularly led the conference in the ERA. <clears throat> your 2020 South Carolina team had really good numbers before the season was cut short. Uh, in your opinion, right now in college baseball, how do you actually get people out in college baseball? I mean, as a, as a pitching coach, you know, what's the general plan for your guys? How do you actually get hitters out in today's game? No,
1: that's a great question. I, I, I will tell you this. I, I'll go back in time a little bit. When I was, and you've been in the league as you alluded to. And the OVC, it's the most hitter-friendly part, hitter-friendly baseballs, you know, using the Wilson baseballs, not the Rawlings. The OVC is a league that has so rarely had ERAs under 5.5 that you got to figure out a niche. Our niche back in the day, we had a lot of right-handed pitchers, not many left-handers. Our niche was we were elite with our change-up usage. That was, that was the thing for me that, that helped us during our time. Eastern Illinois it was just the development of that pitch amongst our guys. And I thought it was what you know, helped with success. When I got to Middle Tennessee State, you were playing kind of in a launching pad to Reese Smith Field, uh, another offensive league. One of the things that we started to get was some guys with some better breaking balls, so breaking ball development became important. Then you move on to, to Michigan State. We had a bunch of big physical bodies. One of the things we started to do was we threw more. We threw some cutters. The cutter became a big part of our repertoire. And then now, in 20, you know, looking in 2020 and then in the previous years, one of the things we've really gotten good at, and it was something I didn't maybe teach as much early in my career, is elevating the fastball. You know, you see it when you watch pro games, and we talk about the analytics of the, the fastball with good flight, good spin rate, all that kind of stuff. And so we've really gotten into the into the realm of being able to elevate. You know elevate in on the hands a little bit to uh, to make guys not only uncomfortable but to make them, you know, chase out of zones that uh, that are not going to be ones in which they can hit. So it's uh you know, you have to evolve. I think the biggest thing I would say is you try to be ahead of the curve. What is the big thing? I I thought we were ahead of the curve with teaching the cutter with guys back in the day. I'm not I don't mean that we were ahead of the curve, but at least we were right on the curve with the working on the elevated fastball, because like I said, it wasn't something that I was maybe heavy into eight, ten years ago. Um, but you're just always trying to stay, you know, as as on time with those as possible. And, and, and to me, the thing that we always have done historically is, and, and I don't, I look just because I'm a pitching coach, there's other people helping this process. There's been amazing bullpen catchers, student assistant coaches, obviously head coaches to an extent. but. We just work our guys, one through, if we have 16, 17, 18 pitchers, we work them hard every day and they all develop. doesn't mean every one of them is going to be, you know, Cy Young, but inevitably they're going to get better and some guys are going to really jump off and, and become superstars. Some guys are going to be just good mid-game relief guys, but we, we've done a good job just getting them the highest level that they're able to achieve.
0: At those different places – it was kind of a different thing that, that sort of um, elevated the pitching staff. Did you did you have that plan going in? I mean, did you go from Eastern Illinois to Middle Tennessee and think that the changeup was going to be the thing there as well and then sort of partway into your time there realized that we need to go a different direction because of the personnel you had and same thing going from Middle Tennessee to Michigan State? I mean, how do you, how'd you kind of decide as a pitching coach, like this is what's going to be the thing to help us? Uh, you know, to, to separate us from the rest of the pack, you know, in the conference and, and in, our, in our region?
1: I think personnel always has to be first and foremost. Um, you know, let's just say you have a ton of guys with great breaking balls. and Okay, how else are we going to get guys out, right? So I think that that was certainly a big part of it. Uh, and on the other token, what I've always found is I, I try to look at a guy whose career changes, right? There's always going to be a guy, sometimes it's just – that, that guy may have nothing to do with with the coaching. It may be just his natural development. But I try to look at those guys, like a Michael Hoekstra, who was one of the best pitchers still this day I've ever coached. But he, he kind of got into a rut his junior year where the breaking ball was okay, the changeup was good, the fastball was good. But, like, all right, what, what else can we do? Well, the cutter became his pitch, you know um a christian who wanted to throw a splitter but once he developed the changeup became a very solid left-handed pitcher you know zach curtis adding a curveball to his repertoire uh paul matura throwing a cutter i, I could go down the list of like our good guys but they needed that additional thing so when the best guys do it sometimes you try trying to trickle it down to the next round of great guys and and say okay look this is why so-and-so is successful I think you can do the same thing or something similar, and here's how we're going to do it.
0: To kind of dig into that a little more, Skylar, I know we're kind of pressed on time here a little bit, but but as you're looking at individual pitchers, um, how do you as a pitching coach, and I'm coming to you as a hitting coach here, but how do you as a pitching coach decide or, or kind of come to the conclusion that, like, I think this pitch can work for you? Does that have to do with uh, – arm slots? Does it have to do with uh, sort of the arm speed, the hand speed of different guys? Do you think this, this pitch or that pitch might work? Do you look at their spin rates and say, okay, because you have higher spin or low spin, like I think this is the way for you to be the best uh, pitcher that you can be? How, how do you sort of go about it from guy to guy to figure out like maybe with this pitcher, it's this three-pitch mix that's going to work, but with this pitcher, it's going to be a different three-pitch mix. How do you how do you do that with such a, obviously have a lot of guys on staff. How do you uh, figure that out from guy to guy? I think in 2020 and beyond you certainly do
1: utilize the metrics to an extent you know the analytics on guys but at the same time i think your eyes your eyes you still got to trust your eyes and and by that i mean not only what you see them do but what what the hitters reaction to what they what they do is And to me the fall is a massive time for that development so um i think you know Testing those things in the fall, seeing the reaction of the hitters, both good and bad. Sometimes you think something's gonna work, and you're sitting at hitters, and you're like, "Oh Lord, that didn't go so well." But I think you can't be afraid to tinker. Doesn't mean that we change everybody, but I think you've got to be moving forward. If you look at it, big league pitchers, they always develop their repertoire throughout their career. Nobody stays the same. And, and so, you know, you look at a Roger Clemens, he used to be heavy with a fastball and a curveball, and later in his career, he was a fork ball. You know, Pedro Martinez used to rely on heavy heat, then he started throwing cutters and more change-ups and a higher, or a, I'm sorry, a bigger uh, angled breaking ball. I, to me, we just, we got to stay ahead of the curve for them before it runs into a situation where they start getting lit all the time and we don't know how to make a change.
0: When you talk about fall baseball, your inner squatting, I don't know how many people know that, I don't know, but uh, I think you guys are allowed to play a couple games in the fall now, but primarily the fall is, uh, it's inner squads, and and to a point, you know, you you have your hitters that are seeing the same pitchers over and over again, they've seen the same pitchers now maybe for several years, guys that are upperclassmen, how much stock do you put into the success? You said it falls a big time, you know, for to develop. How much stock do you put into what kind of a fall a guy has, as far as like, okay, his slider's been really good in the past, but it's getting hit in the fall a little bit here. But is that because guys have seen it so many times, or is it because it's not quite as sharp, um, or or guys are maybe seeing it a little better for whatever reason? How much stock do you put into what you get in fall ball from the inner squad games?
1: Well, if they're really good, then we feel good about it. And if they really struggle, we just say, well, they're sustainable. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean, no,
1: I, I, I think you've you got to take ball for what it is. I think your your attack style is a lot of times different. Uh, but you, you do want to find something that clicks for a guy. I mean, an example I would use is if a guy goes out over a course of an inning, throws, let's just say, seven cutters and he gets seven swing and misses. Okay, I think we can understand that a new pitch or that pitch for them is really good. All right. Well, what can we work on next? Now we may go and throw a fastball in because we need to get better at it. He gives, gives up a hit, and it gives up another hit. And he gives up runs, and everyone goes, "Well, Johnny wasn't very good today." It's like, no, Johnny could dominate you if we went at it just with this thing. But we're trying to continue to evolve his game. What what is next in our bag of tricks? And so, now when you get to the spring, it, it's go time. But I, to me, I've always believed that in the fall, you have to have an element of teaching and and putting them into situations that are different because they're not always going to have pitch A or pitch B. we got to make sure pitch C and D are going to still be great pitches that allow for success. And if they don't, we got to keep working and figuring out how they can do it.
0: Last topic here, Skyler, before I, I, I let you go. Um, when you get guys to come into South Carolina, you have very high-profile high school kids. You have high-profile junior college kids. You have guys that have been drafted before and they've chosen not to sign, they, ch- they choose to come in and play, uh, you know, college ball for three years, uh, or in junior college, uh, guys sometimes, you know, only one or two years. Because of that element of success that they've had before they get to you, how much teaching are you able to do with those guys, or, or, or sort of tinkering, if I can use that word, um, because I think that, you know, a lot of times guys will my experience, a guy that has a lot of success before he gets to college is, is hesitant to make any changes at all, even if it's like, hey, you're really good at these things. Let's add another element. Sometimes they're hesitant to do that because they feel like they've had success. I don't want to change anything. I just want to kind of stay good at what I'm good at. Um, do, do you get that much from guys? And if so, what's what kind of a conversation do you have with them? Or do you just kind of let it um, let it sit until a guy sort of comes to you and and maybe shows a little bit of interest as far as uh, adding something or, like, hey, this isn't working for me well enough. Let, is there anything you think we can do to make it better? What's your approach for guys that are just joining the program who have had a lot of success in the past, those really high-profile guys who might be a little hesitant to change anything? I think you to be careful about doing it
1: too early. Uh, I definitely understand that that line of thinking is, I do think it's important because they are guys that have had success now i think once they do have some struggle you have to be ready with not only what what you think we should try but why that's the thing now kids just want the why if you can give them an accurate bit of information as to why you think this will work the kids the kids are going to listen because they know you have their best interests at, at heart to me the biggest part that makes that easy in my career doing this now 13 years is just the constant communication that that I've had with players, Um, and look, once in a while, something may not, hey, hey, I think you can really throw this curveball good, and then it maybe doesn't pan out, you know? It doesn't mean that it's 100% success, but I think the buy-in has been nearly 100% because of the reasoning and the fact of the matter is these guys, at least for me, I do know that they know that I want them all to be the most successful pitcher they can be, and so I'm living it, I'm obsessing, I'm thinking over it as a coach for them. And if they give me that same effort, which they all do, then we can we can live with the results. But but you definitely have to have those conversations because the talented players usually have more people in their ear, and you just want to be careful about you know things getting misconstrued. as if you're changing a guy the, the minute he walks in the door, even because that's a lot of times that's not the reality, but that can be the perception between them, their family, their former summer coach, their advisor, their. Personal pitching coach, so on and so
0: forth. So you just want to be very cognizant of that. I do, I, I know. I I, uh, I said that was the last thing. But I do want to ask one more thing. If you don't, if you have, do you have another minute or two. Yeah, I got another minute. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I just I, I like I like talking to guys who coach at high levels. I like talking to guys who win games. Um, and you've done both of those things. You're for for your age. You're very very been a very very successful pitching coach. Um, can you point to one or two things with your 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 own self, like these are things that I need to do every day, or on, or or nearly every day on a regular basis to stay on, you know, the at the best I can be. Do you have any any personal habits or anything like that that sort of keep you at your best? That you feel like if you kind of skip them, maybe on vacation or whatever, you're just not quite yourself, and you've got to get back in that rhythm when you get home. Well, I, I'll tell you two things,
1: and these, these these people may think they're on here laugh at I me mean, because especially people that know me. I try to communicate with my circle of of friends and and fellow coaches that I really respect as much as possible. Uh, So that's number one. I mean, and sometimes it's not even talking baseball; it's just getting your brain working, right? Just being good at your, just the act of communication. And then the other thing for me is it's just staying, you know, physically fit. I I work out every day. That's a huge part of my day. Um, And if I don't do it, I don't feel like I'm going to be able to be as great a coach as possible now some people may not understand a correlation but for me there is and the fact of the matter is if if i'm not doing those things and taking care of myself i don't really know how i could take care of other people and so that's at least my mindset and and my belief i do know that when i do those things I'm, i'm as sharp as i can possibly be and as good a coach as i can possibly be i can live with the result if i'm doing those things
0: that's really great stuff this is Skylar meet everybody he's the pitching coach at South Carolina uh, Scott I really appreciate the time that you that you took for this this morning and uh, and all the insight that you shared and maybe we can have you back here again but this has been really fun absolutely